Good evening, everyone. So that's Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Isaac and to Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery this is the word of God why don't you join me in prayer as we look to God for help, um, to help us in opening up his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that now we have that time to just pause and hear you speak. Oh God, our desire is that indeed you would speak, for your word is lively, it is active, it is sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing to soul, to bone and marrow, O oh God. And may it pierce our souls this evening as we hear you speak. May your spirit be in our midst, opening up our eyes and causing us to see your glory and honor, to see our Savior, even Jesus Christ, to the praise and glory of your name we pray. Amen. Well, this evening, I want to speak to you on the subject of a promise fulfilled. God's deliverance is here. A promise fulfilled. God's deliverance is here. Think a bit about that word, a promise. I don't know what that word holds for you this evening. For many... It may perhaps echo a series of letdowns because when you hear the word promise, you are thinking about the many unfulfilled words that were spoken to you, the many letdowns, such that the hearing of that word carries with it some kind of negative vibes to your ears. 
a promise. But when that word is coupled with the word deliverance, it really becomes something else. In the Christian churches, perhaps you have had the promise of deliverance to through a one-night packed spirit-filled overnight prayer session that promised that if you were there and you attended, you would be delivered from all of your troubles. And maybe you've actually tried that. You went. And so promise and deliverance for you are things that are untrue because you went there. You spent the night. There was the man of God. Or is it the man of gold? And yet you remained undelivered from your troubles. But if you think maybe in terms of the African dream and, and, and what promise and deliverance means, and you look at the African story of the African dream of liberation, right? You go back into history and you see that for such a long time, the pursuit of the African dream was liberation from colonialism in all its ugly heads and shapes. And there was this promise that once we just get delivered from the shackles of colonialism, we would be ushered into a place of unprecedented prosperity. That self-rule will bring for us such magnanimous prosperity that we will be dreaming of it all day. Well, you look back at reality today and you look across all of the continent. What do you see? Do you really see a promise fulfilled? Do you really see deliverance ushering into Africa unprecedented prosperity? If you look at Zambia, for example, and, and you look at the first 30 years of Zambia post-independence in 1964. This was a trajectory of, of, of a country whose currency value was stronger than the pound. This was a country whose production base was not only in terms of its natural mineral wealth, they were adding value to many goods, producing so many things, batteries, there were Land Rovers being assembled down in Livingston. There were Peugeot manufacturing. Fast forward 25, 30 years later, and there was a great decline. First, there was indeed a period of great excitement from self-rule, but there was the failure in the promises made to govern in such a way that it would be sustainable to such a point that around 1991, there was such great anger towards our famous late forefather, KK, that he was voted out of governing. And then there was a new and promising rule that was ushered in with the slogan, the hour has come. And they came in and, well, history has it. They did what they did Unfortunately, it was a host of unfulfilled 
promises. And we've changed in Zambia governments after governments, and still the promise remains unfulfilled, right? Maybe it sounds familiar that there is so much frustration that people sometimes even get to a point where they begin to imagine and think, you know, I think the land of oppression was better than the land of liberation. Begin to imagine like that. Well, that's an ancient problem, actually. It's not new in human history. The passage that we have read tells us of a nation that also had promises made to them. But this promise was fulfilled. However, when we look at the nation of Israel and their story, which we will be learning from today, what we see is that, in fact, the greatest need of humankind is not deliverance from oppressive regimes as much as that is important. It is deliverance from the reality and the oppression of sin. And the story of Israel here shows us that. And in fact, it is that that has been God's agenda across history. God, when he was bringing out the nation of Israel, was not just working to build a politically astute nation that would reign and rule across other nations. He was bringing out a nation that would symbolize his greatest achievement, his greatest plan, that of delivering humankind from the enslavement of sin, its oppression upon human life. And Israel foreshadowed that. So when we see God's deliverance of Israel, yes, we see God fulfilling his promise to them in this passage, in keeping with his word. Yes, he delivers them, but all of this foreshadows the fact that God is the deliverer, and it foreshadows the deliverance that Jesus brings to us. And you see it, isn't it, that the real deliverance is really the deliverance from sin. Because Israel here is delivered from the Egyptian rule in such an awesome way. You remember the story, right? They, they, they are plagues that literally force Pharaoh's hand to let the children of Israel go. And even when he lets them go, he thinks again and says, no, I'm not going to let my most precious labor just escape like that. So he pursues them. And God literally opens wide the Red Sea. I mean, how awesome is that? I'm an engineer. And it's always fascinating to think about how God makes water stand still on both sides. Because water is one of the biggest engineering problems, I tell you. It's difficult to contain water. But he makes it stand still and he makes them walk on dry ground right in the middle of the sea. But what happens? A few chapters later, they are not only delivered in that awesome way, they literally hear the sound of God from a mountain that burns, and there is smoke and thunder. 
And, and they literally are crying to Moses and say, please, you speak to us. We can't endure this awesomeness of God. And you would imagine that a people who have been so delivered would be so loyal to this great God who has greatly delivered them. But what happens? In chapter 32, while Moses is up on the mountain, what do they do? We don't know what has happened. Make us something to worship. And they are worshiping a golden calf. You have just walked in the middle of the sea in dry ground and you dare go and worship a golden calf? What's happened? The stubborn, sinful, rebellious heart remains undelivered. And they are self-sabotaging from henceforth, right? They keep doing and getting it wrong before God. So much so God swears that all of you that walked on that sea will not enter the promised land. And he takes them in circles in the desert. They self-sabotage their own success and the promise that God made. But God is still true to himself into his word. Our greatest need is deliverance from sin. And the good news is that promise and God's deliverance is here. And that's what we see in Exodus 6. God's deliverance is here. The promise is fulfilled. And it is here. Well, Let's look at the passage then and just draw some lessons together from it. Exodus 6. The first thing I want us to appreciate is that God brings this deliverance to us in our present condition. This is what he did to the Israelites. We read, if we back up a bit to chapter 5 and read from verse 20, Um, maybe let me read from verse 18. This is Pharaoh speaking. He says, Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge you, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to these people." And you have not delivered your people at all. What state are they in? Well, the Israelites, they are afflicted, they are groaning and frustrated. And it's only getting worse as Moses comes with this message of delivering. It's like the more Moses interferes, the worse the condition gets for them. And so they are frustrated people. And yet in the midst of this affliction, this groaning, and this frustration, 
we find God coming and bringing this message of deliverance to them in, verse, in chapter 6. Moses himself, he is so discouraged. He is saying, God, why did you even send me? Right? Every step I take towards trying to bring about deliverance from this oppression is only making it worse. Why did you even send me? He's so discouraged. And I don't know if you've ever been in a place like that where you are desiring the salvation perhaps of your child, of your sibling, of your neighbor, your friend, your colleague, your workmate, and, and you take time to, to open God's word to them and, and, and to encourage them to turn their hearts to God. And it seems as if the more that you speak the word of God to them, the worse things get in their life, the worse their sinfulness even gets. It seems as if the rebellion just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you don't know what to do. Well, that's the state in which Moses was in. It looks as if doing God's will here was simply making the situation worse. But God comes and he brings his deliverance right in their state. And you know, there is a sense in which our condition can actually keep us from believing the promise of God and the deliverance that God brings. And that's what we see right at the end in verse 9 of, of chapter 6 here. That even though God speaks, and we will look at what he says to the Israelites, their response, we are told, is this in verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now, before we, we condemn them too much, let's just think about their condition here. I mean, if, if you were in their state, you went into Egypt as a people who God had fulfilled his word. Remember, they went in through Joseph, and God literally saved them by bringing them into Egypt and raising Joseph to the highest position in the land, right? They went in like that. Until many years later, a pharaoh that neither knew Joseph or any of the history came, right? That's why people say, always say, know your history, right? He never knew the history, and when he looked at the Israelites, they became a threat, and he says, I am going to turn these people into slaves, and they literally became slaves, right? And they were given to harsh labor, cruel conditions that made them have broken spirits. And the more they tried to fight for their rights, the worse it became for them. So that the labor became harsher and harsher. They were literally making bricks without straw. Here. And all of that designed to crush their spirit, to bring them into a place of hopelessness. And then they have a bit of a glimmer of hope when Moses comes. But what happens? Immediately after that, their situation gets even worse. So you understand that they are in a state 
of brokenness, in a state in which they have lost hope, as it were, of ever being delivered. And they are under the heavy burden of slavery. Isn't this a picture of the human condition? We are born in sin in this world. And then what happens? Sin seduces us, promising us freedom. It gets us so hooked that we can do no other but continue to sin after sin. And then our consciences are so full of guilt. Our spirits become so crushed because of the guilt of sin that we feel upon our hearts. And we feel that there is no hope of freedom from the enslavement of sin. And it eats away at our lives. It's like a cancer destroying relationships around us, sabotaging us, keeping our hearts and, and minds burdened with guilt. We are broken, enslaved, without hope and without God. Remember, this is how the apostle describes us without Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, we, we lived under the principles of this world. We lived our lives giving yield to our desires and passions. That's who we are without God. And when we have given in to one desire and one wicked passion, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And before we know it, we are so hooked. We actually don't know how to live without it, and yet we hate it at the same time. What a picture of the human condition. You know, in, in Zambia, in, in, in the Copper Belt, there is a group of people that are referred to as Jerabos. And these are generally illegal miners who are gangs, cruel, and, and they, have, they get a lot of money from those illegal mining activities. And because they have a lot of money, they tend to buy off the system so they get away with a lot of activities. Well, one of the things that they are notorious for is the fact that they would look at a young girl beautiful, and they are attracted to her, and they pursue her, they splash all of the money that they can, and they have loads of money, yeah? Not, as they say, not money that fits in, in the wallet, right? It's money that they drive in the trunk of their cars, right? That's, that's, that's the kind of money. So, you know, you, you, you take a girl out and you're buying her a food drinks, they can buy her the whole bar, literally. And they do that, they splash. But then, they are such ruthless people that when they have pursued that girl, they literally want her to themselves. She can never say no to their requests. She can never get out of that relationship. It begins to be abusive to her. And not only is it abusive to her, it's life-threatening even for their families. You dare say no, we will sort out 
your father. They, 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 they literally come. Uh, I remember someone telling the story of, of one girl and says, you know, they come to, to their home at midnight and they say, hey, I'm outside. And the, the girl is trying to say, yeah, but I'm home. You know, my parents says, come out. Otherwise, we will come in and beat your parents. Hooked, enslaved. That's what sin is like to us. Promising so much, but when it gets us, it's full of nothing but abuse to us. Enslaving us and making us burdened with its guilt. Well, maybe you are in that state. Maybe the promise of God's deliverance this evening doesn't ring to you any sense of hope and joy. In fact, maybe when you look around, you wonder, what's, what's the excitement all about with respect to, to, to Christmas story and, and this whole joy to the world? Maybe you are even wondering that those of us who are so excited about this Christmas period must just be faking it. We probably are living by the motto, fake it until you make it. Because really, can you truly be joyful in such a sinful world. Well, God brings his deliverance. God says, I have come down to deliver you. I will deliver you. And this is what he said to the Israelites. Right in the midst of their present condition. I don't know what condition you're in. But God's word comes to us this evening, in the midst of that condition, saying, I will deliver you. Secondly, God is our deliverer. You see, it's not only that God brings this deliverance and this message of deliverance, it is the fact that he himself is the deliverer. And this is what he has been showing the children of Israel across the ages. And he makes it emphatic here when he is speaking. And we go back to, to verse 2. When he says to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, into Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Do you notice the personal pronouns there? Do you notice how emphatic God is by saying, I will 
I will. I will. You see, when it comes to our deliverance, it's not an issue that God has delegated to any of his creation. It is God himself who is our deliverer. God personally works out salvation and freedom from sin. It's exactly what he says in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27, when he says, I will put my spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. It's God personally working deliverance in our lives. And I wonder, has he worked that deliverance in your life? Do you know this God who is a deliverer? Well, he tells us a little bit more about himself and why we should trust him in this verse. Firstly, he gives us a description of his divinity or his deity as his essence. When he says in verse 3 to Moses, he says, I am the Lord and I appeared to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. He says he is the Lord. I am the Lord. That word, the Lord there, that is uh, again repeated when he says that by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known, is the word uh, Jehovah. Okay? And Jehovah is really Yahweh with Adonai combined. So when you have the name of God uh, as Adonai and Yahweh combined, then you make the phrase that we refer to as Jehovah. And this is the sacred name of God that the Israelites rarely mentioned because it speaks to God as the self-existent one. It speaks to God as the one who is independent of all things. It speaks to God as the doer and fulfiller of his word. And that's the point he's making here when he says, I've appeared to your forefathers as God Almighty, but as Jehovah, I have not made myself known. Now, it's not that they didn't know God as Jehovah. In fact, when you look back, Abraham, um, Jacob, um, and Isaac, you find the name Jehovah being used even in their story. But God's point is that they have seen something of my mind. But here, as the one who fulfills the promises I made to them, they have not known. But now I am showing it to you. I am fulfilling that promise that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I would turn you into a great nation. They lived without seeing that promise. You are going to see it, and you're going to see it here and now. So God wants us to appreciate that about himself. And then again, he says of himself that he is the God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. 
And so he wants us to appreciate that he is one who has no limits in his power. He is self-existent. He does what he promises. And he has all of the power. But secondly, he gives us a description of his character in relation to us or to his creation as people. And, and that's what he says about himself. He says this, and I want you to notice it again, verse 5. He says, I have heard the groaning of the people. What's the significance of that? Well, God is saying, I am a living God. I am a compassionate God. When it comes to you as the people that I have created, I am not insensitive to your situation. I am not insensitive. I don't turn a blind eye to your situation. I hear you as you groan in your affliction. And I am compassionate towards your affliction. And therefore, I am coming now to fulfill my promise of deliverance. He is living and compassionate. Not only that, he says to us, I have remembered my covenant. In verse 5 again, I have remembered my covenant. And again, what is he revealing? He is saying to us, I keep my word. That's the kind of God I am. When I make you a promise, you can count on it. Despite all of the broken promises that you have known in your life, this is different. I am not only the self-existent. I am not only all-powerful. I am not only living and compassionate. I am true to every word I have made. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because God is true to his word, isn't it? He promised the deliverer. And guess what? The deliverer came in human flesh, born in a manger. Almighty, yes, but born in a manger. Self-existent, yes, but taking on human form. Eternal, living God, but taking on flesh so that he is able to sympathize with our weakness as well. Jehovah remembers and he executes his promises. He executes them to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what Jesus did. Born to die that we might live forever. This is the God who is now saying my deliverance is here. Would you not believe this deliverance? Would you not rely and heartily cast yourself upon this God and wholly trust in the one who is not only almighty and self-existent, who is true to his word so that we know in this life when he says, I will give you a heart of flesh, those of us who have turned to him in repentance and faith, we have seen the power of God at work. His transforming power from the inside out. Across the ages, when he says that the good work that I have begun in you, I will be able to bring it to completion. Haven't we seen it? 
I remember I struggled with this when I became a Christian because I was young. I wondered, will I be a Christian down to my older age? Or is this just a passing phase of youth? And at some point, I am going to grow out of this, and the world and its allurements is going to knock me off my feet and drive me, and I will become completely the opposite of what I feel and know now. Ah, but friends... God is true to his word. The work that he begins in our souls, he brings to completion. He is the one who saves, and he works in us by his spirit. Let me end by just echoing the fact that we also see in this passage that God's deliverance is holistic. There is not an aspect that God does not deal with in salvation. And very quickly, let me just point it out to you in the passage. Firstly, you notice that when he brings this message of deliverance, he says to them in the perfect tense, it's almost as if it's done, right? That I will, as we saw earlier. He says to them that you will have victory and defeat over the enemy. That's what I will achieve. In verse 1, the very first verse, he says to them, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. What will you do? He says, With a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. What is he saying? He's saying, Watch and see me defeat the enemy. Friends, in God we find victory over sin, victory over death. That's what Christ achieves for us on the cross. There is a complete victory. That is why the apostle in Romans says, we are more than conquerors. That is why he asks the question, what is it that will separate us from the love of God? What? Hunger? Famine? Death? Demons? Angels? Absolutely nothing because God gives victory. Not only that, he also gives freedom. And that's what we see in verse 6 where God says to them that I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery. Freedom from the enslavement of sin. There is nothing that is as liberating as coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ and finding in your soul the power to be able to say no to your lusts and passions and worldly desires. That power comes from on high. It's liberating that the things that once held you hooked no longer have a hold on you because of the work of God inside out. It's freedom. Not only does he give freedom in terms of bringing us out of the burden and giving us liberty, we are told he also gives redemption. And we see that again. He says, I will redeem you. What is that phrase? It's saying, I will fully purchase you so that sin will have no claim upon you. I will fully ensure that the price 
for your freedom is fully paid for. And again, that's what God did in Jesus Christ on the cross. Redeemed. That's why we sing, redeemed. How I love to proclaim it. Freed from the shackles of sin to liberty in Christ Jesus. Not only does he redeem us, we are told in verse 7 that he adopts. And that's what he says. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Pause for a while and think about this. A child of God. That's what he's saying. You will be mine. Belong to my family. Be on the list of the heirs, as it were, to my throne. So that if I can say it without blaspheming, if I were to die, you would inherit all of my being. But obviously we know God can never die, isn't it? But that's what it means. It says, you will be my people. But you're not just the people that will be far away. He says to them, you will know that I am the Lord your God who has delivered you. I will not only just bring you to be my children and then you are part of this dysfunctional family as we were learning this morning and I don't relate to you as a father. No, he says, you will know, you will have fellowship with me. You will have communion with me. And then in verse 8 he says, I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. That promised inheritance of eternal life. It's coming. It begins now when we turn to Christ in repentance and faith. But, oh, friends, this is nothing compared to what we will experience when we hear the trumpet sound and Jesus coming down from on high. That is why the Apostle John says, dear friends, now we are the children of God and what we will be, I don't know yet. But one thing I know is that when he returns, we will be like him. Try to study and describe what that means, to be like Jesus. Think about the fact that he is God. There is a glory that we are yet to inherit, and it's coming. Well, God's deliverance is holistic. May we therefore rejoice in this holistic deliverance of God this festive season. Amen.